Chapter 9 of The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olauda Equiano. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olauda Equiano by Olauda Equiano. Chapter 9. The author arrives at Martinico, meets with new difficulties, gets to Montserrat, where he takes leave of his old master and sails for England, meets Captain Pascal, learns the French horn, hires himself with Dr. Irving, where he learns to freshen sea-water, leaves the doctor, and goes a voyage to Turkey and Portugal, and afterwards goes a voyage to Granada, and another to Jamaica, returns to the doctor, and they embark together on a voyage to the North Pole, with the Honourable Captain Phipps. Some account of that voyage, and the dangers the author was in, he returns to England. I thus took a final leave of Georgia, for the treatment I had received in it disgusted me very much against the place, and when I left it and sailed for Martinico, I determined never more to revisit it. My new captain conducted his vessel safer than my former one, and, after an agreeable voyage, we got safe to our intended port. While I was on this island I went about a good deal, and found it very pleasant. In particular I admired the town of Saint-Pierre, which is the principal one in the island, and built more like a European town than any I had seen in the West Indies. In general, also, slaves were better treated, had more holidays, and looked better than those in the English islands. After we had done our business here, I wanted my discharge, which was necessary, for it was then the month of May, and I wished much to be at Montserrat to bid farewell to Mr. King, and all my other friends there, in time to sail for old England in the July fleet. But, alas! I had put a great stumbling-block in my own way, by which I was near losing my passage that season to England. I had lent my captain some money, which I now wanted, to enable me to prosecute my intentions. This I told him, but when I applied for it, though I urged the necessity of my occasion, I met with so much shuffling from him, that I began at last to be afraid of losing my money, as I could not recover it by law, for I have already mentioned that, throughout the West Indies, no black man's testimony is admitted on any occasion against any white person whatever, and therefore my own oath would have been of no use. I was obliged, therefore, to remain with him till he might be disposed to return it to me. Thus we sailed from Martinico for the Granadas, I frequently pressing the captain for my money to no purpose, and, to render my condition worse, when we got there, the captain and his owners quarrelled, so that my situation became daily more irksome. For besides that, we on board had little or no victuals allowed us, and I could not get my money nor wages. I could then have gotten my passage free to Montserrat had I been able to accept it. The worst of all was that it was growing late in July, and the ships in the islands must sail by the twenty-sixth of that month. 
At last, however, with a great many entreaties, I got my money from the captain, and took the first vessel I could meet with, for St. Eustatia. From thence I went in another to Basseterre in St. Kitts, where I arrived on the 19th of July. On the 22nd, having met with a vessel bound to Montserrat, I wanted to go in her, but the captain and others would not take me on board until I should advertise myself, and give notice of my going off the island. I told them of my haste to be in Montserrat, and that the time then would not admit of advertising, it being late in the evening, and the captain about to sail, but he insisted it was necessary, and otherwise he said he would not take me. This reduced me to great perplexity, for if I should be compelled to submit to this degrading necessity, which every black freeman is under, of advertising himself like a slave when he leaves an island, and which I thought a gross imposition upon any freeman, I feared I should miss that opportunity of going to Montserrat, and then I could not get to England that year. The vessel was just going off, and no time could be lost. I immediately, therefore, set about, with a heavy heart, to try who I could get to befriend me in complying with the demands of the captain. Luckily I found, in a few minutes, some gentlemen of Montserrat whom I knew, and having told them my situation, I requested their friendly assistance in helping me off the island. Some of them, on this, went with me to the captain, and satisfied him of my freedom, and, to my very great joy, he desired me to go on board. We then set sail, and the next day, the twenty-third, I arrived at the wished-for place, after an absence of six months, in which I had more than once experienced the delivering hand of Providence, when all human means of escaping destruction seemed hopeless. I saw my friends with a gladness of heart, which was increased by my absence and the dangers I had escaped, and I was received with great friendship by them all, but particularly by Mr. King, to whom I related the fate of his sloop, the Nancy, and the causes of her being wrecked. I now learned, with extreme sorrow, that his house was washed away during my absence by the bursting of a pond at the top of a mountain that was opposite the town of Plymouth. It swept a great part of the town away, and Mr. King lost a great deal of property from the inundation, and nearly his life. When I told him I intended to go to London that season, and that I had come to visit him before my departure, the good man expressed a great deal of affection for me, and sorrow that I should leave him, and warmly advised me to stay there, insisting, as I was much respected by all the gentlemen in the place, that I might do very well, and in a short time have land and slaves of my own. I thanked him for this insistence of his friendship, but, as I wished very much to be in London, I declined remaining any longer there, and begged he would excuse me. I then requested he would be kind enough to give me a certificate of my behaviour while in his service, which he very readily complied with, and gave me the following. Montserrat, January 26th, 1767. The bearer hereof, Gustavus Vasa, was my slave for upwards of three years, during which he has always behaved himself well, and discharged his duty with honesty and assiduity. Robert King. To all whom this may concern.
Having obtained this, I parted from my kind master, after many sincere professions of gratitude and regard, and prepared for my departure for London. I immediately agreed to go with one Captain John Hamer, for seven guineas, the passage to London, on board a ship called the Andromache, and on the twenty-fourth and twenty-fifth I had free dances, as they are called, with some of my countrymen, previous to my setting off, after which I took leave of all my friends, and on the twenty-sixth I embarked for London, exceedingly glad to see myself once more on board of a ship, and still more so in steering the course I had long wished for. With a light heart I bade Montserrat farewell, and never had my feet on it since, and with it I bade adieu to the sound of the cruel whip, and all other dreadful instruments of torture, adieu to the offensive sight of the violated chastity of the sable females, which has too often accosted my eyes, adieu to oppressions, although to me less severe than most of my countrymen, and adieu to the angry, howling, dashing serfs. I wished for a grateful and thankful heart to praise the Lord God on high for all his mercies. We had a most prosperous voyage, and at the end of seven weeks arrived at Cherry Garden Stairs. Thus were my longing eyes once more gratified with a sight of London, after having been absent from it above four years. I immediately received my wages, and I never had earned seven guineas so quick in my life before. I had thirty-seven guineas in all when I got cleared of the ship. I now entered upon a scene quite new to me, but full of hope. In this situation my first thoughts were to look out for some of my former friends, and amongst the first of those were the Miss Garrens. As soon, therefore, as I had regaled myself, I went in quest of those kind ladies, whom I was very impatient to see and with some difficulty and perseverance I found them at Mays Hill, Greenwich. They were most agreeably surprised to see me, and I quite overjoyed at meeting with them. I told them my history, at which they expressed great wonder, and freely acknowledged it did their cousin, Captain Pascal, no honour. He then visited there frequently, and I met him four or five days after in Greenwich Park. When he saw me he appeared a good deal surprised, and asked me how I came back. I answered, "'In a ship,' to which he replied dryly, "'I suppose you did not walk back to London on the water.' As I saw by his manner that he did not seem to be sorry for his behaviour to me, and that I had not much reason to expect any favour from him, I told him that he had used me very ill, after I had been such a faithful servant to him for so many years, on which, without saying any more, he turned about and went away. A few days after this I met Captain Pascal at Miss Garin's house, and asked him for my prize-money. He said there was none due to me, for, if my prize-money had been ten thousand pounds, he had a right to it all. I told him I was informed otherwise, on which he bade me defiance, and, in a bantering tone, desired me to commence a lawsuit against him for it. "'There are lawyers enough,' said he, "'that will take the cause in hand, and you had better try it.' I told him then that I would try it, which enraged him very much. However, out of regard to the ladies, I remained still. 
and never made any farther demand of my right. Sometime afterwards these friendly ladies asked me what I meant to do with myself, and how they could assist me. I thanked them, and said, if they pleased, I would be their servant, but if not, as I had thirty-seven guineas, which would support me for some time, I would be much obliged to them to recommend me to some person who would teach me a business, whereby I might earn my living. They answered me very politely that they were sorry it did not suit them to take me as their servant, and asked me what business I should like to learn. I said, hairdressing. Then they promised to assist me in this, and soon after they recommended me to a gentleman whom I had known before, one Captain O'Hara, who treated me with much kindness, and procured me a master, a hairdresser, in Coventry Court Haymarket, with whom he placed me. I was with this man from September till the February following. In that time we had a neighbour in the same court, who taught the French horn. He used to blow it so well that I was charmed with it, and agreed with him to teach me to blow it. Accordingly he took me in hand, and began to instruct me, and I soon learned all the three parts. I took great delight in blowing on this instrument, the evenings being long, and besides that I was fond of it I did not like to be idle, and it filled up my vacant hours innocently. At this time also I agreed with the Reverend Mr. Gregory, who lived in the same court, where he kept an academy and an evening school, to improve me in arithmetic. This he did as far as barter and allegation, so that all the time I was there I was entirely employed. In February 1768 I hired myself to Dr. Charles Irving, in Pall Mall, so celebrated for his successful experiments in making sea-water fresh, and here I had plenty of hair-dressing to improve my hand. This gentleman was an excellent master. He was exceedingly kind and good-tempered, and allowed me in the evenings to attend my schools, which I esteemed a great blessing. Therefore I thanked God and him for it, and used all my diligence to improve the opportunity. This diligence and attention recommended me to the notice and care of my three preceptors, who on their parts bestowed a great deal of pains in my instruction, and besides were all very kind to me. My wages, however, which were by two-thirds less than I ever had in my life, for I had only twelve pounds per annum, I soon found would not be sufficient to defray this extraordinary expense of masters, and my own necessary expenses. My old thirty-seven guineas had by this time worn all away to one. I thought it best, therefore, to try the sea again, in quest of more money, as I had been bred to it, and had hitherto found the profession of it successful. I had also a very great desire to see Turkey, and I now determined to gratify it. Accordingly, in the month of May, 1768, I told the doctor my wish to go to sea again, to which he made no opposition, and we parted on friendly terms. The same day I went into the city in quest of a master. I was extremely fortunate in my inquiry, for I soon heard of a gentleman who had a ship going to Italy and Turkey, and he wanted a man who could dress hair well. I was overjoyed at this, and went immediately on board of his ship, as I had been directed, which I found to be fitted up with great taste, 
and I already foreboded no small pleasure in sailing in her. Not finding the gentleman on board, I was directed to his lodgings, where I met with him the next day, and gave him a specimen of my dressing. He liked it so well that he hired me immediately, so that I was perfectly happy, for the ship, master, and voyage were entirely to my mind. The ship was called the Delaware, and my master's name was John Jolly, a neat, smart, good-humoured man, just such an one as I wished to serve. We sailed from England in July following, and our voyage was extremely pleasant. We went to Villafranca, Nice, and Leghorn, and in all these places I was charmed with the richness and beauty of the countries, and struck with the elegant buildings with which they abound. We had always in them plenty of extraordinary good wines and rich fruits, which I was very fond of, and I had frequent occasions of gratifying both my taste and curiosity, for my captain always lodged on shore in those places, which afforded me opportunities to see the country around. I also learned navigation of the mate, which I was very fond of. When we left Italy, we had delightful sailing among the Archipelago Islands, and from thence to Smyrna in Turkey. This is a very ancient city, the houses are built of stone, and most of them have graves adjoining to them, so that they sometimes present the appearance of churchyards. Provisions are very plentiful in this city, and good wine less than a penny a pint. The grapes, pomegranates, and many other fruits were also the richest and largest I ever tasted. The natives are well-looking and strong-made, and treated me always with great civility. In general, I believe they are fond of black people, and several of them gave me pressing invitations to stay amongst them, although they keep the Franks or Christians separate, and do not suffer them to dwell immediately amongst them. I was astonished in not seeing women in any of their shops, and very rarely any in the streets, and whenever I did they were covered with a veil from head to foot, so that I could not see their faces except when any of them out of curiosity uncovered them to look at me, which they sometimes did. I was surprised to see how the Greeks are, in some measure, kept under by the Turks, as the Negroes are in the West Indies by the white people. The less refined Greeks, as I have already hinted, dance here in the same manner as we do in my nation. On the whole, during our stay here, which was about five months, I liked the place and the Turks extremely well. I could not help observing one very remarkable circumstance there. The tails of the sheep are flat, and so very large, that I have known the tail even of a lamb to weigh from eleven to thirteen pounds. The fat of them is very white and rich, and is excellent in puddings, for which it is much used. Our ship being at length richly loaded with silk and other articles, we sailed for England. In May 1769, soon after our return from Turkey, our ship made a delightful voyage to Oporto in Portugal, where we arrived at the time of the carnival. On our arrival there were sent on board to us thirty-six articles to observe, with very heavy penalties if we should break any of them and none of us even dared to go on board any other vessel or on shore 
till the Inquisition had sent on board and searched for everything illegal, especially Bibles. Such as were produced, and certain other things, were sent on shore till the ships were going away, and any person in whose custody a Bible was found concealed was to be imprisoned and flogged, and sent into slavery for ten years. I saw here many very magnificent sights, particularly the Garden of Eden, where many of the clergy and laity went in procession in their several orders with the host, and sung Te Deum. I had a great curiosity to go into some of their churches, but could not gain admittance without using the necessary sprinkling of holy water at my entrance. From curiosity, and a wish to be holy, I therefore complied with this ceremony, but its virtues were lost on me, for I found myself nothing the better for it. This place abounds with plenty of all kinds of provisions. The town is well built and pretty, and commands a fine prospect. Our ship having taken in a load of wine and other commodities, we sailed for London, and arrived in July following. Our next voyage was to the Mediterranean. The ship was again got ready, and we sailed in September for Genoa. This is one of the finest cities I ever saw. Some of the edifices were of beautiful marble, and made a most noble appearance, and many had very curious fountains before them. The churches were rich and magnificent, and curiously adorned both in the inside and out. But all this grandeur was in my eyes disgraced by the galley-slaves, whose condition both there and in other parts of Italy is truly piteous and wretched. After we had stayed there some weeks, during which we bought many different things which we wanted and got them very cheap, we sailed to Naples, a charming city, and remarkably clean. The bay is the most beautiful I ever saw. The moles for shipping are excellent. I thought it extraordinary to see grand operas acted here on Sunday nights, and even attended by their majesties. I, too, like these great ones, went to those sights, and vainly served God in the day, while I thus served Mammon effectually at night. While we remained here there happened an eruption of Mount Vesuvius, of which I had a perfect view. It was extremely awful, and we were so near that the ashes from it used to be thick on our deck. After we had transacted our business at Naples we sailed with a fair wind once more for Smyrna, where we arrived in December. A Seraskier, or officer, took a liking to me here and wanted me to stay, and offered me two wives. However, I refused the temptation. The merchants here travel in caravans, or large companies. I have seen many caravans from India, with some hundreds of camels, laden with different goods. The people of these caravans are quite brown. Among other articles, they brought with them a great quantity of locusts, which are a kind of pulse, sweet and pleasant to the palate, and in shape resembling French beans, but longer. Each kind of goods is sold in a street by itself, and I always found the Turks very honest in their dealings. They let no Christians into their mosques or churches, for which I was very sorry, as I was always fond of going to see the different modes of worship of the people wherever I went. 
the plague broke out while we were in Smyrna, and we stopped taking goods into the ship till it was over. She was then richly laden, and we sailed in about March, 1770, for England. One day in our passage we met with an accident, which was near burning the ship. A black cook, in melting some fat, overset the pan into the fire under the deck, which immediately began to blaze, and the flame went up very high under the foretop. With the fright the poor cook became almost white, and altogether speechless. Happily, however, we got the fire out, without doing much mischief. After various delays in this passage, which was tedious, we arrived in Standgate Creek in July, and at the latter end of the year some new event occurred, so that my noble captain, the ship, and I all separated. In April, 1771, I shipped myself as a steward with Captain William Robertson of the ship Granada Planter, once more to try my fortune in the West Indies, and we sailed from London for Madeira, Barbados, and the Granadas. When we were at this last place, having some goods to sell, I met once more with my former kind of West India customers. A white man, an islander, bought some goods of me to the amount of some pounds, and made me many fair promises as usual, but without any intention of paying me. He had likewise bought goods from some more of our people, whom he intended to serve in the same manner, but he still amused us with promises. However, when our ship was loaded and near sailing, this honest buyer discovered no intention or sign of paying for anything he had bought of us, but on the contrary, when I asked him for my money, he threatened me and another black man he had bought goods of, so that we found we were like to get more blows than payment. On this we went to complain to one Mr. Mackintosh, a justice of the peace. We told his worship of the man's villainous tricks, and begged that he would be kind enough to see us redressed. But, being negroes, although free, we could not get any remedy— and our ship being then just upon the point of sailing, we knew not how to help ourselves, though we thought it hard to lose our property in this manner. Luckily for us, however, this man was also indebted to three white sailors, who could not get a farthing from him. They therefore readily joined us, and we all went together in search of him. When we found where he was, I took him out of a house and threatened him with vengeance, on which, finding he was likely to be handled roughly, the rogue offered each of us some small allowance, but nothing near our demands. This exasperated us much more, and some were for cutting his ears off, but he begged hard for mercy, which was at last granted him, after we had entirely stripped him. We then let him go, for which he thanked us, glad to get off so easily, and ran into the bushes, after having wished us a good voyage. We then repaired on board, and shortly after set sail for England. I cannot help remarking here a very narrow escape we had from being blown up, owing to a piece of negligence of mine. Just as our ship was under sail, I went down into the cabin to do some business, and had a lighted candle in my hand, which, in my hurry, without thinking, I held in a barrel of gunpowder. It remained in the powder until it was near catching fire, when fortunately I observed it, and snatched it out in time, 
and providentially no harm happened, but I was so overcome with terror that I immediately fainted at this deliverance. In twenty-eight days' time we arrived in England, and I got clear of this ship. But being still of a roving disposition, and desirous of seeing as many different parts of the world as I could, I shipped myself soon after, in the same year, as steward on board of a fine large ship called the Jamaica, Captain David Watt, and we sailed from England in December 1771 for Nevis and Jamaica. I found Jamaica to be a very fine large island, well peopled, and the most considerable of the West India Islands. There was a vast number of negroes here, whom I found as usual exceedingly imposed upon by the white people, and the slaves punished as in the other islands. There are negroes whose business it is to flog slaves, they go about to different people for employment, and the usual pay is from one to four bits. I saw many cruel punishments inflicted on the slaves in the short time I stayed here. In particular I was present when a poor fellow was tied up and kept hanging by the wrists, at some distance from the ground, and then some half-hundred weights were fixed to his ankles, in which posture he was flogged most unmercifully. There were also, as I heard, two different masters noted for cruelty on the island, who had staked up two negroes naked, and in two hours the vermin stung them to death. I heard a gentleman I well knew tell my captain that he passed sentence on a negro man to be burnt alive, for attempting to poison an overseer. I pass over numerous other instances, in order to relieve the reader by a milder scene of roguery. Before I had been long on the island, one Mr. Smith at Port Morant bought goods of me to the amount of twenty-five pounds sterling. But when I demanded payment from him, he was going each time to beat me, and threatened that he would put me in jail. One time he would say I was going to set his house on fire, at another he would swear I was going to run away with his slaves. I was astonished at this usage from a person who was in the situation of a gentleman, but I had no alternative. I was therefore obliged to submit. When I came to Kingston I was surprised to see the number of Africans who were assembled together on Sundays, particularly at a large commodious place called Spring Path. Here each different nation of Africa meet and dance after the manner of their own country. They still retain most of their native customs, they bury their dead, and put victuals, pipes and tobacco and other things in the grave with the corpse, in the same manner as in Africa. Our ship having got her loading, we sailed for London, where we arrived in the August following. On my return to London I waited on my old and good master, Dr. Irving, who made me an offer of his service again. Being now tired of the sea, I gladly accepted it. I was very happy in living with this gentleman once more, during which time we were daily employed in reducing old Neptune's dominions by purifying the briny element and making it fresh. Thus I went on till May 1773, when I was roused by the sound of fame to seek new adventures, and to find— towards the North Pole, what our Creator never intended we should, a passage to India. An expedition was now fitting out to explore a northeast passage, 
conducted by the Honourable John Constantine Phipps, since Lord Mulgrave, in His Majesty's Sloop of War, the Racehorse. My master being anxious for the reputation of this adventure, we therefore prepared everything for our voyage, and I attended him on board the Racehorse, the twenty-fourth day of May, 1773. We proceeded to Sheerness, where we were joined by His Majesty's sloop the Carcass, commanded by Captain Lutwidge. On the 4th of June we sailed towards our destined place, the Pole, and on the 15th of the same month we were off Shetland. On this day I had a great and unexpected deliverance from an accident which was near blowing up the ship and destroying the crew, which made me ever after during the voyage uncommonly cautious. The ship was so filled that there was very little room on board for any one, which placed me in a very awkward situation. I had resolved to keep a journal of this singular and interesting voyage, and I had no other place for this purpose but a little cabin, or the doctor's storeroom, where I slept. This little place was stuffed with all manner of combustibles, particularly with tow and aquafortis, and many other dangerous things. Unfortunately, it happened in the evening, as I was writing my journal, that I had occasion to take the candle out of the lantern, and a spark having touched a single thread of the tow, all the rest caught the flame, and immediately the whole was in a blaze. I saw nothing but present death before me, and expected to be the first to perish in the flames. In a moment the alarm was spread, and many people who were near ran to assist in putting out the fire. All this time I was in the very midst of the flames. My shirt and the handkerchief on my neck were burnt, and I was almost smothered with the smoke. However, through God's mercy, as I was nearly giving up all hopes, some people brought blankets and mattresses and threw them on the flames, by which means in a short time the fire was put out. I was severely reprimanded and menaced by such of the officers who knew it, and strictly charged never more to go there with a light, and indeed even my own fears made me give heed to this command for a little time. But at last, not being able to write my journal in any other part of the ship, I was tempted again to venture by stealth with a light in the same cabin, though not without considerable fear and dread on my mind. On the 20th of June we began to use Dr. Irving's apparatus for making salt water fresh. I used to attend the distillery— I frequently purified from twenty-six to forty gallons a day. The water thus distilled was perfectly pure, well tasted and free from salt, and was used on various occasions on board the ship. On the 28th of June, being in latitude 78, we made Greenland, where I was surprised to see the sun did not set. The weather now became extremely cold, and as we sailed between north and east— which was our course, we saw many very high and curious mountains of ice, and also a great number of very large whales, which used to come close to our ship, and blow the water up to a very great height in the air. One morning we had vast quantities of sea-horses about the ship, which neighed exactly like any other horses. We fired some harpoon-guns amongst them, in order to take some, but we could not get any. 
The thirtieth, the captain of a Greenland ship came on board, and told us of three ships that were lost in the ice. However, we still held on our course till July the eleventh, when we were stopped by one compact impenetrable body of ice. We ran along it from east to west above ten degrees, and on the twenty-seventh we got as far north as eighty-thirty-seven, and in nineteen or twenty degrees east longitude from London. On the twenty-ninth and thirtieth of July we saw one continued plain of smooth unbroken ice, bounded only by the horizon, and we fastened to a piece of ice that was eight yards eleven inches thick. We had generally sunshine and constant daylight, which gave cheerfulness and novelty to the whole of this striking, grand, and uncommon scene, and to heighten it still more, the reflection of the sun from the ice gave the clouds a most beautiful appearance. We killed many different animals at this time, and among the rest nine bears. Though they had nothing in their paunches but water, yet they were all very fat. We used to decoy them to the ship sometimes, by burning feathers or skins. I thought them coarse eating, but some of the ship's company relished them very much. Some of our people once in the boat fired at and wounded a seahorse, which dived immediately, and in a little time after brought up with it a number of others. They all joined in an attack upon the boat, and were with difficulty prevented from staving or oversetting her. But a boat from the carcass having come to assist ours, and joined it, they dispersed, after having wrested an oar from one of the men. One of the ship's boats had before been attacked in the same manner, but happily no harm was done. Though we wounded several of these animals, we never got but one. We remained hereabouts until the first of August, when the two ships got completely fastened in the ice, occasioned by the loose ice that set in from the sea. This made our situation very dreadful and alarming, so that on the seventh day we were in very great apprehension of having the ships squeezed to pieces. The officers now held a council to know what was best for us to do in order to save our lives, and it was determined that we should endeavour to escape by dragging our boats along the ice towards the sea, which, however, was farther off than any of us thought. This determination filled us with extreme dejection, and confounded us with despair, for we had very little prospect of escaping with life. However, we sawed some of the ice about the ships to keep it from hurting them, and thus kept them in a kind of pond. We then began to drag the boats as well as we could towards the sea, but after two or three days of labour we made very little progress, so that some of our hearts totally failed us, and I really began to give myself up for lost when I saw our surrounding calamities. While we were at this hard labour I once fell into a pond we had made amongst some loose ice, and was very near being drowned, but providentially some people were near who gave me immediate assistance, and thereby I escaped drowning. Our deplorable condition, which kept up the constant apprehension of our perishing in the ice, brought me gradually to think of eternity, in such a manner as I never had done before. I had the fears of death hourly upon me, and shuddered at the thoughts of meeting the grim king of terrors in the natural state I then was in, and was exceedingly doubtful of a happy eternity, if I should die in it. I had no hopes of my life being prolonged for any time, 
for we saw that our existence could not be long on the ice after leaving the ships, which were now out of sight and some miles from the boats. Our appearance now became truly lamentable. Pale dejection seized every countenance. Many who had been before blasphemers, in this our distress began to call on the good God of heaven for his help, and in the time of our utter need he heard us, and against hope or human probability delivered us. It was the eleventh day of the ship's being thus fastened, and the fourth of our drawing the boats in this manner, that the wind changed to the east-north-east. The weather immediately became mild, and the ice broke towards the sea, which was to the south-west of us. Many of us on this got on board again, and with all our might we hove the ships into every open water we could find, and made all the sail on them in our power, and now, having a prospect of success, we made signals for the boats, and the remainder of the people. This seemed to us like a reprieve from death, and happy was the man who could first get on board of any ship, or the first boat he could meet. We then proceeded in this manner till we got into the open water again, which we accomplished in about thirty hours, to our infinite joy and gladness of heart. As soon as we were out of danger we came to anchor and refitted, and on the nineteenth of August we sailed from this uninhabited extremity of the world, where the inhospitable climate affords neither food nor shelter, and not a tree or shrub of any kind grows amongst its barren rocks, but all is one desolate and expanded waste of ice, which even the constant beams of the sun for six months in the year cannot penetrate or dissolve. The sun now being on the decline, the days shortened as we sailed to the southward, and on the twenty-eighth, in latitude seventy-three, it was dark by ten o'clock at night. September the tenth, in latitude fifty-eight fifty-nine, we met a very severe gale of wind and high seas, and shipped a great deal of water in the space of ten hours. This made us work exceedingly hard at our pumps a whole day, and one sea, which struck the ship with more force than anything I ever met with of the kind before, laid her under water for some time, so that we thought she would have gone down. Two boats were washed from the booms, and the long-boat from the chucks. All other movable things on the deck were also washed away, among which were many curious things of different kinds, which we had brought from Greenland, and we were obliged, in order to lighten the ship, to toss some of our guns overboard. We saw a ship, at the same time, in very great distress, and her masts were gone, but we were unable to assist her. We now lost sight of the carcass till the twenty-sixth, when we saw land about Orfordness, off which place she joined us. From thence we sailed for London, and on the thirtieth came up to Deptford, and thus ended our Arctic voyage, to the no small joy of all on board, after having been absent four months, in which time, at the imminent hazard of our lives, we explored nearly as far towards the pole as eighty-one degrees north and twenty degrees east longitude, being much farther, by all accounts, than any navigator had ever ventured before, in which we fully proved the impracticability of finding a passage that way to India. End of chapter 9 
read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on March 15, 2007, in Oceanside, California.